Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Dale, are we really here? Have we, we in fact returned? Alas, we have arrived. The again. journey of podcast episodes, yay, uh, despite its absence, meant to continue uh, yes. after so long a hiatus. We are, in fact, back. Uh, excited and uh, looking forward to many future podcasts. We have indeed had a hiatus for the last five or six months for for various reasons. Uh, uh, Dale would have. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about a uh, 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 an actual subject today, but perhaps it'll grow out of just uh, very briefly updating our listeners on what we've been doing for the last five or six months and a conversation that has been brewing between Dale and I as we've been uh, 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 setting our sights on getting back to it. So. Dale, I suppose, uh, uh, leading up to that, what have you been up to for six months, brother? Yeah, a lot. Um, the six months went by really fast. So, um, you know, we started Pietist Classical Christian uh, two years ago. Um, over the summer, over the going into this summer, uh, there was an opportunity to open up a second campus. So, um, at the end of last year, we started having conversations about opening a second campus in the north end of the county. Our current campus is in the center of the county. So Brevard County is the longest county in Florida. And the goal was to have one in the middle, one up north and one down south. So opportunity presented itself and we have been aggressively hiring teachers and administrators and building the um, systems out and just getting more organized as an institution uh, but we are opening a second campus in the north end of the county we'll have a total of like right around 200 ish students this next year um, so training teachers hiring people figuring out software all of all of that that's what's been keeping yes. me busy for the last and so dale's dale's excuse for postponing uh, the next episode for six months is that he's had something to do every podcast moment for the last six <laughs> yes. months um, yes i was on a personal hiatus from uh most of my regular uh teaching fellow uh activities with the davenant institute uh for those of you who don't know this podcast is in part an extension of the ministry of the Davenant Institute. And uh, uh, I was I was on hiatus from some of those duties, uh, partially to take a, a kind of break after three years uh, of doing this, but also uh, to be productive in a different way during that break, which is I'm, I'm writing a book. In the meantime, my my dissertation, Bulwarks of Unbelief on, on Atheism and Divine Absence, that has been published in the last six months. So some of the last six months was spent kind of preparing for that to come out and doing various interviews. So I've been in the podcast world, but just not on my own, uh, doing various interviews for that book. But in the meantime, in the last six months, I've also been working on the manuscript of a, of a forthcoming book, which is a kind of supplemental text to Bulwarks of Unbelief, uh, a book about uh, you might say, a, a presentation of the Christian faith to late modern people organized effectively around sort of the basic items of the creed. I'm not I'm not taking the creed specifically, but I, I'm, I'm more or less taking a late modern imagination and trying to say, you know, how does the existence of God, uh, you know, how, how, do, how does our context make that a hard problem for us? Right. But then taking that same question and then going on to the other bits of the faith, you know, what about the Bible? What about Jesus? You know, what about the virgin birth? What about the atonement? What about the end times? You know, that sort of thing. And trying mm -hmm. to kind of take that same rhetorical voice and 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 and, and kind of mental uh, uh, style, I suppose, and, and work through the items of the faith. And so that's been a lot of my work has been kind of prepping for that, shopping it around. And uh, I'm hoping to have that manuscript done by the end of the year. 
Um, so in the meantime, you know, you've been talking a ton. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, um, we'll probably end up doing an episode. We'll probably end up doing several episodes about bulwarks of unbelief. I know that you talked about sort of just opening up and exploring. I mean, we've got the author. Let's let's talk about what he thinks about what he wrote. Um, so that'll be like future and the at some point in the future, we'll we'll discuss that. But I think you and I have been, um, you know, it's funny. You could say that our conversations are sort of we, we really have one conversation. And then the things that orbit around that one conversation uh, that we drill into, those become um, their own sort of category of words that we use to talk about the one thing. And the one thing you and I think are always discussing um, is is natural law. I mean, if you have to put a label on it, right? And, and I know that's packed with definitions that people apply to it and they mean certain things when they use those words. Uh, but I think what you and I uh, talk about is like just the phenomena of being. <laughs> uh, what does it mean to just be here and to open our eyes and take in the world and hear sounds and taste food and smell smells? And then what does that mean for like our marriages and our our children and our friendships and our church and, you know, all what does it mean to be alive right now is really what we, you and I talk about the most. Um, so I guess in that vein, you know, I'm currently uh, walking through Abolition of Man with my teaching staff. We've mm-hmm. taken the four Wednesdays in uh, July, and I give two-hour lectures on um, each of the essays. We spent two weeks in the way. Um, so there's no better per- there's no better person to sort of anchor a conversation in than C.S. Lewis, and no better mm-hmm. text. Uh, than abolition of man when you talk about natural law or traditional values or first principles or something like that. Um, So maybe we can start there and just catch people up into our conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that text is really fascinating. One of the things Dale and I have talked about quite a bit in the abolition of man that is, I think, sometimes missed is that Lewis, you know, obviously Lewis doesn't quite just straight up say natural law in the text. He uses this Tao, you know, the Tao is what he calls it. Uh, and the Tao is interesting because he's, uh, I think there's some 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 deliberate reasons he's using that category as opposed to the more traditional nomenclature. Uh, and one of them is that it allows him to do something kind of in between uh, uh, what you might think of as traditional natural law discourse and other modes of discourse, maybe a more historical and cultural discourse. Mm-hmm. And the way I think that gets put together is that uh, one has to recognize when you kind of read between the lines and abolition of man is that for Lewis, the Tao is never just kind of the collection of positive laws that can be rationally derived from natural law, but rather the Tao is natural law more or less inflected through tradition and custom. And so within the Tao are kind of those primary axioms of natural law that are never going to change, right? Do good, avoid evil, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, that sort of stuff. Nevertheless, what all that amounts to, exactly what does it mean not to commit adultery and avoid murder and whatever, is heavily inflected through circumstance and custom and all that sort of thing. And that's actually where most people kind of encounter the effects of natural law in themselves. It's not, as I think sometimes one has the impression of, it's not a sort of uh, a kind of trans-historical set of datum 
that you yes. plug into with immediacy, um, or at least it's not only that. It is mediated to you uh, through a tradition, through custom, through language, through a set of understandings. And it's always also kind of apocalyptically present. In that sense, natural law is also always immediate, but yes. it's immediate kind of in dialogue with its its inflection through custom, through tradition, through history, and through the whole of, of one's learning, which is why Lewis can go on. And, and, and I've you know, rarely heard anybody talk about this, but why Lewis can go on to say that the Tao... Uh, can change in some special circumstances. And that, that you know, in natural law discourse, that might mean, you know, you know, don't commit adultery can change. Well, no, the primary axioms of the Tao can't change. But the epiphenomenal axioms of the Tao, yes. that custom inflection can change. And you've just been teaching that part. So maybe I'll, I'll toss it over to you and tell me kind of what you've been doing with the, the sort of change in the Tao sort of, sort of theme Lewis writes about. Yeah, yeah. I think before we go there, you know, I just want to sort of emphasize something you just said, which is that it's not this sort of, uh, you know, um, stream of datum one plugs into intentionally. Uh, and and Lewis sets the argument up by talking about the waterfall, right? And how um, the uh, recognition that the waterfall is sublime is actually saying something objectively true. Right. It's not just a subjective feeling that bubbles up from our sentiments and overflows and uh, as a description of our feelings, um, even though it is that but that the waterfall summons out of us that which is appropriate, proportionally appropriate to describe the waterfall. Uh, so within the waterfall is an inherent nature that demands a certain sentiment relation to it. And then we utter words to describe that sentiment. Doesn't matter if it's sublime or, you know, if we, if we were in Asia, it's that word, or if we lived 2000 years ago, whatever that word was. Right. Um, so that's sort of to, to emphasize your point, this idea of changing the Tao then means that the sentiment is there. It's always a, an appropriate ordered love to a thing uh, in recognition of the thing's nature. Uh, so with that first movement, then we can sort of say, all right, there's your basic kernel. Like that's, that's what a thing is. Now, how do we how do we how do we treat this thing or talk about this thing or how do we create laws around this thing given what it is and uh the example that i use i actually pulled it from russell kirk um is and tweaked it a little bit is i say imagine that you've got a million part machine right uh, and the million part machine has been running for ten thousand years very effectively very efficiently if i walk up to the machine and I just start like grabbing wires and ripping it out and hitting bolts and just messing with it wholesale. I don't know what the implications right. to the systems are that right. I'm affecting. And so it doesn't mean that I can't go to the machine and look at the machine and go, ah, look, I bet I can make this better in some way, better being subjective here. It depends on what the machine is. Let's just assume the machine is the normal operations of reality or something like that. Uh, if I if I tinker with this, maybe it would help the machine produce that which it's supposed to do produce better, then I can change that. But I'm always working with the raw material of the machine within the systems of the machine rather than imposing something on the machine that's foreign to the machine. So I can change it, but I have to change it from within, given that I know what the machine does. And it's interesting that Lewis says, 
the only persons that can do this is the Kuar Gentile or the uh, tender hearted man. And I always found that, you know, amazing because this is a little rabbit trail and then I'll shut up. But when I, whenever I was growing up and I heard, you know, men without chests, I always thought that's like, you know, oh yeah, men without chests means the guy that's not like, you know, real super masculine can swing an ax hard and like, you know, build a log cabin with his bare hands or something like that. A man without a chest is a man that lacks a tender heart, right? Uh, that lacks the emotional balance to properly name reality. Um, so you have so the so he assumes that one must have a tender heart if one is going to change the Tao. Yeah, so, like yeah, that. because you you have the you have the belly, the head, and the chest, and I think it's kind of worth thinking a little bit about that. Recall that. The, the 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 kind of monkey character in the last battle is is described mm -hmm. as chestless you're supposed to kind of imagine this kind of turkey bodied monkey guy who doesn't really have much of a chest and that's very intentional that the monkey is without a chest so what is he very clever in the mind but his mind is governed entirely by his inflated gut and so a lot of the kind of axe swinging thing you're talking about which is of course a cool skill learn to swing an axe that's amazing and really sure. fun but uh but of course like that kind of sentiment that you're talking about can actually just be the gut uh, uh instrumentalizing the mind you know you know yes. in the chest yeah as you point out is this uh other uh, uh i think more interesting thing right it's kind of like tradition in that sense, in custom, it's it's that there's, you know, there's the, you know, the primary essence of, of natural law, which is just the law of charity and love, which has its first inflection point in positive laws like do good and avoid evil. And those th those those laws are summarized, of course, just in the law of love and things like the, the Ten Commandments. But then, of course, on top of the Ten Commandments, you have all these case law. And what the Christian tradition is generally said is something to the effect of, you know, kind of Old Testament case law applies to us today, but largely through the the, the filter of general equity. A lot yeah. of that's applying to a particular circumstance, marriage, custom, all that sort of thing. You know, civilization changes, language changes, habits change, uh, environments change. And so the particular inflection point changes a bit. But what Lewis is kind of saying is, well, who's going to be the one that knows when we can, and that's the right way you put it, kind of tweak the machine. And it's kind of the ninja, as it were, who's already got the moves down, who can yeah. say, well, in this special circumstance, do this thing, you know, actually do the move, you know, do this, this move this way. Uh, and it, and it's, the, it's the one, in a sense, plugged into the deepest axioms of the Tao uh, yeah. that know when to, uh, 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 when it needs to change and how it needs to change in its inflection. And you could say that also, you know, kind of using a, a more, you know, base example, like the, the child who knows when that weird exception comes where like normally you're supposed to obey dad, you know, fully obey dad. But every now and again, you're actually supposed to disobey dad. It's rare, but when dad asks you to sin, you need to disobey him. And then the question becomes like, who's the person who can tell when it's time to disobey dad? Well, it's probably not you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. You're yeah. probably not so obedient to dad and your heart uh, that your problem is, is that like you, you, you know, you're yeah, exactly. It's the one whose heart is fully thrown into the father uh, that knows precisely when to disobey dad. Yeah. 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 And I think that's important because I think, 
you know, this goes into other conversations you and I have had about, um, you know, uh, Dr. Brad Littlejohn talks about this. I'm sure he's probably talking about this right now up there uh, in Yeah, Landrum. he's teaching on the other side of this wall as we speak. Yep, yep. Um, but the lack, or let's say the, the radical distrust of authority that we are currently experiencing in the West, and I live in America, so I'll just say in America, uh, means that most people have taken upon themselves a sense of authority in all things. People assume that they are uh, their own medical authority, uh, their own religious authority. And, you know, you could you could say, well, here's a million reasons for that. I think one of them is the, the idea that we have a lot of choice, right? Like um, I, I can choose between 5,000 different brands of cereal. Uh, or if I don't like the church I go to, I can go to the church down the street. And so I can sort of manufacture because of the way that the infrastructure uh, of America has shaped up and the market has actually changed our psychology, we become our our highest authority. So we feel like we are now in control of tinkering with the Dow, like it's left up to us. We are the ones, right? Uh, when in most cases, I think what you're pointing out is on the Aristotelian mean, chances are you're not on the other side, right? You probably have not arrived at where you can uh, accurately diagnose and then uh, apply a solution to most of the problems that you perceive in the world. And so what are you left with? Well, you're left on sort of relying back on what other people have said. Um, and, you know, you have said this about Bavink, and I think it's true. Bavink is the first theologian that's really looking at the modern man, um, like really downstream. But I think Lewis, in a similar way, was yeah. very kind of prophetic because he understood, and this is sort of, and you see this most clearly in that hideous strength, right? Uh, where he envisions the, the domination of nature to such a degree um, that nothing natural exists anymore. It's like the Lorax, right? Like the grass is plastic and the trees are done away with. Um, and that happens when a hu when humanity feels like they are the ones that get to invent some new principles upon which we rely. And uh, in the Abolition of Man, uh, Lewis talks about Nietzsche. He kind of puts this on Nietzsche, this shift, like something happened when Nietzsche came along and God is dead and we killed him and Nietzsche understood we're going to, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be a bunch of hard work, but we're going to have to create radically different uh, value systems and structures. Um, and, you know, I think we're in the middle of something like that to a degree uh, here in America. Um, and I don't want to, we don't have to talk about particulars, uh, but I think that it's self-evident where those advances are being tried and the failure to actually accomplish the establishment of a new, yeah. radically new and altogether different value system. Yeah, part of the difficulty with discussion of natural law right now is precisely that our understanding and really a, a firm and good handle on natural law is inflected through custom. And yet we live during the demise of all custom, the relativization of all custom. And that is morally, it's inevitable that that's morally confusing. And so it's not that we just kind of choose a tradition and always like, you know, 
I, I mean, in a sense, the tradition is not that visible to us in some ways. Uh, you actually kind of have to go find the tradition in a lot of ways. Your traditions that you inherit by default are already quite radical. And you have to kind of go discover the tradition if you want the advice. And in a sense, I think the 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 move the, the wisdom of that we can have in the modern world is just to recognize, well, we just are that thing. We're kind of thrown into that tornado where everything's a little bit confusing. There's not really custom to kind of grab a hold on, which doesn't mean there's not natural law, which doesn't mean it's not discoverable. But it means uh, that that you, you nevertheless... Um, you know, you have options within that. And I think the the relationship to tradition that's just prudential, and this is just kind of an old conservative talking point, right? Uh, is just to recognize that the tradition is probably smarter than me. Right. That is to say, if I'm in the tornado and life is confusing, um, well, I'm not alone. Humans have been in the tornado with life being confusing before, and they've written down the things that they have concluded from that. Right. And the tradition is in some sense, the kind of hive mind inheritance, the map through the territory of the tornado of history in a sense. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's not, that doesn't mean it's infallible. It doesn't mean the map can't be tweaked or anything like that, but it would be dumb not to have any amount of deference to it. And, and uh, you know, so there's the, you know, so you don't have pure disorientation but I think our orientation, and this is where I wouldn't want to say natural law is only that, uh, our orientation is also found, and this is where change in the Tao is also found, through the immediate access, nevertheless, that we always do have, not to natural law as a collection of propositions, but to natural law as an actual living force in ourselves and in our communities. And it's that kind of frontal confrontation of natural law uh, that is really, you know, you're deferring to tradition while you're frontally conferred, uh, 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 interacting with kind of the forces of natural law. Um, but there's a, irreducibly a kind of active dominion element, uh, a kind of your, your own contribution to the tradition element, you might say. Uh, that's that's part of that frontal, that kind of frontal engagement of natural law. And that that, um, if I could put it that way, that kind of frontal side of natural law with the tradition behind us, um, that uh, uh, mode of engagement with the forces of natural law, I think is going to have to become more prominent in our context. On the one hand, we're, we're very numb to the forces for many reasons, yes. and yet the recovery of those forces, and maybe this is God's intention providentially, will require the pressing into them actually in some ways more self-consciously perhaps than it's historic, historically been ordinary. Yeah, and you know, if you try to say like practically, how do we do that, right? I think that this, the answer really is simultaneously simple, but also, um, well, uh, deeply uh, difficult given given the fact that we're sinners. But like, what does that mean? How do we press into that? And I think the answer, and I think Lewis would say this because I think this is what Lewis was saying all the time. The answer is love, of course. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just, and it's not love that is mm -hmm. divorced of sentiment, but it's also not love dripping with sentiment. It's proper love. It's the giving away of oneself, right? this sort of emptying out. And we see the archetype of that is Jesus. When Jesus arrives, right, he gives himself up for sinners. Uh, and that is a picture of like, actually, we call that recreation, what, what Jesus inaugurates through his death and resurrection, 
which is like uh, the antitype of creation, right? So God, pure act, being, donating, being, two things. Like the very act of creation is an act of love, of God's love yep. to yep. all things. Yep. Uh, and then Jesus makes that more explicit and we are supposed to. So if it's like at the bottom of it, you know, I love the way you talk about how it's like do good, not evil. That's sort of at the bottom. And then it's like, well, what does do good mean? Well, you could say love, love, yep. love yep. God and love neighbor, yep. which is why it, it is so uh, simple, but it's also deeply profound. And I think the older yeah. I get, the more I'm starting to understand how to love. Um, and one of the things that I want to circle right back around just real quick to the idea of this gentle heart uh, being the precondition to um, change the Tao or to at least analyze the Tao and suggest changes uh, is precisely because the heart is not naturally inclined towards gentleness. Um, and the heart in the modern world is becoming hardened. Like I see yeah. it it's hardening of the collective heart of mankind toward yeah. other humans is becoming hardened. So it's like, what does this mean on the ground? Well, it just means to love. Uh, and you know, what's so strange to me, Joe, is like when you say that people, especially around the political discourse, people immediately attribute to you like some weird, soft sort of squishiness. Uh, and it's like, well, yes, love, but, and they have to qualify it. And it's like, sure, however we qualify it, at the bottom though, if we're talking about sort of the Tao, love is there. So don't treat it as if it's some um, uh, escape hatch from difficulty or something like that, right? Like, oh, you just say that because you're bailing out on the hard work of what it means to hold a civilization together. You know, it's like yeah. actually, I'm pressing into the very glue by which civilization. That is, this is the hard work that holds right. civilization together, that holds yes. a church together, that holds a business together, that holds a family together, that holds any successful human project together, honestly. Um, <clears throat> Yes, I think that's really important. And in fact, there's 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 a synthesis here. I mean, there's some there's some parity, I think, between some of the things you see in scripture and some of the things you see in the virtue ethics, natural law tradition, in that you know, often, and I think we've said this before, but often and here I'm drawing on Stephen R. L. Clark's discussion of uh, Aristotle. You know, the golden mean is understood as kind of like uh, finding a balancing act, right? So it's sort of like take the virtue of, you know, a virtue is courage and a kind of uh, uh, excessive parody of courage as being reckless and, right. a pri and, and a privation of courage as being cowardly, something like that. Uh, and so uh, uh, what, you know, sort of the golden mean is to say, you know, don't be reckless, don't be cowardly, be courageous. And you're kind of trying to precisely be courageous, something like that. Right. Um, but but what Aristotle actually argues, according to Clark, is that, you know, most of us just aren't that morally insightful. Most of us can't just like know what courage is. Right. What we know is that we fall off probably because we're weak on one side of those vices. My tendency, whether generally or in this specific circumstance, is either a bit toward recklessness or a bit toward uh, uh, um, uh, cowardice. And so I just need to press, if I'm gonna move toward whatever precision is, and I don't know what it is, right. I just like my strategy on the margins is to push against what I suspect my native tendency is, you know, kind of off the horse. But precision takes exemplars. 
It takes the concrete, courageous person that you can point at and say, that is positively what courage looks like. Yes. Not just as a definition in the mind, but as a potent actual thing that I can see and witness. And in that sense, you interestingly, Aristotle says things like that, but in this world, in the actual world of history, uh, you know, you know um, Balthazar will call Christ the concrete analogia entist, the concrete analogy of being, the historical an analogy of being. And he is love incarnate. He's the exemplar that now the whole world can point to and say, well, what does it mean to be that thing? We'll go look at him and be like him. And, and uh, yeah, well, actually, I'll stop there and send it back to you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point, and it's worth discussing more. I want to ask you, though, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So um, in your lecture uh, that you gave a couple weeks ago when I was up there, um, you talked about this moment in history, and this is something you and I have discussed before, but it's just, I think, worth it to because it's very apropos for the uh, yeah. conversation. There's this moment in, like, history where the Logos – by which we mean the sort of unified collection of all things in the mind starts to take not take over but be more dominant in our thought than the mythos right so we relied on story as a people for so long and that was like our orientation to the world how do we understand the world well it's largely through the like the gods are doing something and by the gods we mean like the stars up there right um and then we started to like uh, be self-referential and ask ourselves in abstract, increasingly abstract ways, like, okay, uh, what does it mean that I'm here rather than not here? Or what is the purpose of my life? And that was never real. And I don't know, I can't say this with a certainty, but I would imagine that the purpose of one's life is bequeathed to them, given their family and their location, right? You grow up in some Germanic tribe 5,000 years ago. The purpose of your life is to survive, right? And to like continue on dad's tradition, whatever that is. Um, so talk about that, that sort of pivot in yeah. human history and how does it relate it's very to related to our point about natural law being inflected through the through custom which isn't terribly different than saying natural law is inflected through language so think think about it almost by parallel of, of imagining the relationship between the human race and the culinary tradition imagine that adam doesn't come out of the garden and he already knows how salt and pepper work um, right. The vast majority of the discovery of which spices are good on food are totally lost to us. We don't know who discovered salt and pepper, probably, or sugar. And then you right. can go into like wheat and doing this with wheat and the fermentation of this. There's massive, massive, you know, eons of culinary discoveries that are almost invisible to us because they just seem like they've taken we we do things on top of them. There's a similarity in kind of the history of talking about God. And you can take for granted what it might have been to like not like there is God and there is me and there is the world, but there's not a tradition of how to name any of that. We don't know how to name the animal. So how do I name God in the world? Well, there's, as it turns out, you start somewhere and it's not a wrong place. It's an inevitable place. You start with the things in front of you. God is like that rock. <laughs> and the, the movement to formalization in history is in one sense, and, and the movement that some historians, like, again, Steve, the aforementioned Stephen R. L. Clark in his book, Ancient Mediterranean Philosophy, um, the movement from a kind of world that kind of 
unifies its understanding of things in the vernacular of mythos to a world that unifies its understanding things in the vernacular of logos, which are not ultimately, I mean, what he's going to argue and what the kind of typical kind of galaxy brain Christian hot take is the Christian world through the incarnation fuses these two worlds. <laughs> Mythos and logos come together in the concrete true myth that is the Christ. Right. Um, um, but what uh, Clark is arguing is that the, uh, you, you might say that the, you, you could almost imagine it as a growth in vocabulary and circumstance and really perhaps the reverse direction. Circumstance deep inheritance of a lot of tradition at that point, generating new problems, which inevitably generate these kinds of problems, which are just taken as relevant by the humans who generate the problems and answer them. But there's a movement toward formalization about the world itself, and likewise in the world of morality. Um, that is to say, in one sense, early on when people are talking about good and evil, you are talking in the language of the Ten Commandments. You do have love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But as Alistair has pointed out recently to me, you know, some of those are kind of like when you're reading them in the Old Testament text, they're kind of buried in all the laws. It's Jesus who picks them out and says, these are the things that it's all about. And the Ten Commandments is kind of one way of, of, of kind of teaching, you know, you know, the ethical world. By the time you get to the Proverbs, you're you're several hundred years later in the history of Israel, and it's interesting that it kind of corresponds to the uh, the stage of youth in Israel's life, right? That, mm-hmm. that the the law, uh, which Paul says is kind of like the law given to children, is saying do and do not, and it's ethics for children, right? It's kind of like, hey, here's the boundaries around which you need to stay. It's you know very concrete. Well, by the time you get to the Proverbs, Israel's at a stage where we're we're becoming a kings. Now we're the king is training his son, his youthful, you know, young man's son to go become a king. And so now what are we doing? Well, we're staring at the world and we're staring at things and we're saying, how do we internalize that principle and that 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 vibe in the world and utter that? And how does that direct us in these more fine-grained, internalized ways? But by the time you get to the Sermon on the Mount in Christ, where you have the maturation of the human race ultimately in Christ, the moral maturation of the human race in Christ, we can just say love. Right. It's all that. <laughs> it right. all comes down uh, to that. And you see that movement toward formalization, both in the metaphysical sphere and in the moral sphere. And, uh, and, and of course, the event of the Christ in history transforms both the, the will of man and the mind of man to excl- explicate that both in a lived and in a explained way um, um, in the history of the church. Yeah, yeah. It really does get down to like, uh, do you ever see that meme, uh, meme where um, like the grug brain take on the, uh, on the, on the um, or what am I thinking of? What's the name of that? The bell curve meme. The bell curve meme. Yeah. And the rug brain take is like, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And then at like the top of them, it's like, that's not true because of this, this, this. And it's like, you know, some guy in his cage stage theologian, you know, and then on the other side, it's like the, the Chad guy with the beard is like, yes, uh, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Uh, it's sort of that relationship to everything. And I think you see that movement throughout the, the, the scriptures actually uh, do that. We see the immaturity of Israel getting worked out in the judges and the kings and and the maturity of it in David and then Solomon. And then ultimately all those things are pointing to 
the Christ and he comes right and summarizes it all. So yeah, yeah. it's a good thing. Going back to something you said uh, earlier that I think is really profound. I mean, you're, you're talking about how, you know, this is about the chest, right? That the, the, the inflection point of natural law, that's interesting, right? That when we think of natural law, we tend to think of, uh, you know, it's in the context of kind of moral chaos. And so we tend to think of natural law as a kind of, uh, it's easy for it to get scripted as kind of the en moral engineering system that's going to, you know, give us all the hot take arguments and that sort of thing. But but Lewis's access point to measuring natural law and encountering natural law, a discussion of natural law, isn't in the mind. It is in the sentiments. And I think that's a really, really important point is that sometimes we, yeah, yeah, we, we get the impression that the, the, the orderedness of the mind over the other faculties is just this kind of like trump card effect of the mind over everything else. But you have to remember that your mind is affected. Your mind is, you know, you're not wise. Your mind is already uh, affected by your emotions and your passions far more than you realize. But sometimes your emotions actually have real purchase on the world and deliver a message to your mind that's kind of like, hey, are you being motivated? That doubt that you have, you know, hey, are you being a little motivated by avarice or, you know, something here or something like that? Um, and so natural law actually comes to us through the whole profile in a sense of our, the ways in which the human encounters the world. And you talked about that subject-object distinction earlier, and I think this is important to say when we talk about natural law and everything we've been saying, and especially what it means to change a performance of an inflection of natural law, is that sometimes we, again, get this impression that the what it is to live is that here I am and the world is kind of crashing in on me and I need to find this algorithmic system to then move out into the world and then you know go do things in it. And I think it's better to say, yes, the world is kind of there's a there's one way in which the world is this thing coming in upon you, but you're not a static, non-moving object in the world. You're an acting mover in the world, always already automatically. You're right. always in motion. You're always an image, you might say, you know, the philosophers talk about being thrown into the world, but you almost might say that what it is to be thrown into the world is sort of like skydiving through reality. You've been chunked off the airplane of being and you're just floating through the air. And in a sense, natural law and tradition, the ninjas are coming along, you know, their movements are calibrated and they're, you know, right. past, whizzing by and like, well, you put your hand here and do this and, <laughs> you know, whatever. And that's going to, you know, help you coast, you know, you know, coast through this thing. And in a sense, what it is to be a human uh, is always already to be an inflect, a kind of style of movement from within oneself against the forces of the world and of natural law. And of course, what that means is most of us are chunked off the airplane and we're just flailing around, <laughs> you know, and that sort of thing. And the world and, and, and the, the scriptures and your friends and the church are all about in their various ways, helping you in that journey plummeting toward <laughs> plummeting toward the eschaton, you might say, yes. <laughs> of ordering yeah. yourself so that when you splash, yeah. When you yes. hit the water, uh, uh, you're just going to pierce it smoothly. Uh, yes. You know, it, you know it, ultimately, we'd say that that happens through the gospel. And therefore, what repentance is, you might say, hmm. repentance isn't just a, you know, this is where that, that notion of repentance as a change of movement, I think, is a really helpful image. Again, imagine yourself plummeting through skydiving. But what is repentance? It's somebody coming along and say, you're going to miss the mark. 
right. you're missing the mark. Calibrate this way, and then you'll hit the bullseye. And that's yes. just what repentance is. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love it. Uh, chucked uh, skydiving through reality, brother. We're, we're going to have another show just on that. Beautiful. Yeah. I think one of the last things that I'll say um, is I want to, I want to sort of riff off of what you just said about the chest, you know, um, stoicism comes along and I think stoicism is so um, attractive because it recognizes a need for balance. It recognizes that we are in some degree too concerned about that which we cannot control and affects us internally and we become disorganized internally which makes our skydiving uh journey even more wobbly because right. it's like you're constantly reacting to things and you're never just harnessing your body and controlling how you're plummeting um, you're just always in a state of reaction about the world around you, which you ultimately cannot control. And so stoicism's attractiveness is precisely in its balance. But Christianity comes along in history and offers all that stoicism does, but in more potent ways and none of the downside of stoicism, which is just to become uh, this sort of um, uncaring passive agent moving through the world that doesn't really emotionally invest in anything uh whereas jesus is sort of showing um we it's not that we need to be um you know unnecessarily a let me say it this way it's not that we need to be so moved by the things that we can't control uh, because he cried when Lazarus dies, right? Um, he cares about his friends. He wants yes. his friends to stay away. And that is natural. He's participating in natural law when he natural does that, law. because that's the right fitting response of the whole part. That's the rational. The mind is actually rationality itself. You could the say mind, the mind consents to the to the tears because that's actual. Those tears are 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 the they're the fitting the fitting way to reflect the whole of God in one's bone body. And then that response that God has encoded into our body is, is something says something of himself. And how yeah, I mean, tears that. are not, tears are not arbitrary. I always used to say right. this, like, I remember going through seminary and I was wrestling through um, the, their philosophy course, which was largely dominated by um, Gordon Clark. Yep. Uh, and he has very little, he has no good things to say about emotions. And I would always ask, you know, my peers, I'm like, so did God just like arbitrarily give us these tear ducts that are supposed like, what it, is it just yeah. to lubricate our eyeballs? And yes, why did yes. these, the water fall out of our eyes when we feel sad? Uh, <laughs> is, is the feeling not supposed to be there? And it, you know, and I think well, we ultimately, go ahead. Well, interestingly, again, this gets back to kind of what you're saying at the beginning is that Ty, what, is, what is, Titius and Gaius is that what uh, Lewis labels the people that write this about the waterfall. They're making this kind of subject object distinction. And you pointed out to me the other day when we were talking that in one sense, you could read Titius and Gaius as trying to preserve kind of objective value, objective aesthetics, objective morality. And again, a lot of the recovery of natural law discourse can think it's doing the same thing in as much as it reduces natural law to an event going on in the mind and we're trying to preserve objective morality, objective aesthetics, objective this. Right. But in a sense, yes. what Lewis, what that does though, is it misses that the world is always already 
smashing into you in its meaning and in its value and what what's often missed and this is both in contemporary natural sometimes in contemporary natural law discourse and in Titius and Gaius and it's really what Lewis is correcting in a sense is Lewis's own way of uh, one might say that Lewis really is challenging a ver some ways of even thinking about the subject object distinction again mm. they're not static there and there's the world throwing into you but but what it is to be alive just is to be a co-relationship with the world, your co-relationship uh, right. with the world. And so you're always thrown into the world as a whole person through all the access points through the, which the world gets to you, sensations, smells, thoughts, feelings, desires, etc. All of those are portals that the whole world and the whole of you dialogue together. And that really just is your, your conversation with reality. And it's that from which you're actually able to talk about it. And there's this weird way in which trying to like the, the mind, of course, is meant to have this governing and ordering role in that plummeting down to the eschaton. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's an ordering role that recognizes not just the kind of the clinical telling of everything else what to do, but that rather orders uh, with uh, within the natural operations of all the parts, orders within the natural operations of all the parts and all the ways that they receive uh, reality, uh, uh, the whole self uh, uh, on its journey. And th that's really just a, a long-winded way of saying even even though for Lewis, natural law is the solution to Titius and Gaius's problem as framed, there's a way that we could even use natural law discourse to recreate Titius and Gaius's problem, which is yes. which is which is with they're actually just divorced from the the encounter with reality as the primal site of human contact with being, uh, yeah. and that like if you have to like gray that out, and that's not meaning then you've you've lost you've lost reality and you'll never actually get it back yes yes beautiful i uh and what you're talking about i mean this is just in our tradition man i mean saint augustine was talking about this when of course when he talks about the ordered loves uh, but he talks about this sort of precognitive knowledge it's like in your senses it's a sense knowledge it's a knowledge derived through the senses um this is this is the last thing i'll say i think uh, the irony is that you're right, Gaius and Titius think they are protecting children against propaganda uh, that that's going to lead them into subjectivism. And the brilliance of Lewis is to say, actually, you are the propagandist. And if we follow you, we're all going to be slaves. That's the abolition of man. It's, the, it's that we're enslaved to other men. Um, because we don't have a chest. We don't have the the way in which we mediate reality appropriately. And therefore, you become um, a victim to anyone who just exerts might over you. Right? Yeah, and that's the image of that chest is kind of that thing I just said, where it's it's the in-between thing. And it's a, right. it's out front, right? It's where you hit reality as you're moving right. through it is in the chest. And yes. the mind and the gut come together there. It's this mediating space where all the all the magic happens yeah which is why jordan peterson says like one of his first rules is um stand up straight with your chest out <laughs> right and he actually back. yeah 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 your shoulders back i'm sorry yeah. yeah and he actually talks about this he's like the reason why is because like 
you're right. It's like you're open to the world. You're 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 ready to encounter what's going on around you, you know, and you're yeah. not and you, that's just a confident way to carry yourself. Interestingly, looking the most away from yourself as a posture. When you yes. think again of that that old church historical yeah. image of the incurved man as yes. the one who's self-consumptive and, and and drawn into sin and that sort of thing, and you can even see that when people are depressed and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's it's the the most active, the most living person is you know the one who 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 dies to himself finds his life. The person who's looking the least at themselves and moving yes. outward out there is actually the most alive in one sense. That's not, I'm not saying that's exactly what Jesus is talking about, but that's a, a at least a, a parody, a, 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 a parody thing. Yes. Um, Very good. Well, brother, this was excellent. Thank you for the conversation. I know you've got a house full of students. Please tell them all I said, hey, and uh, Dr. Bradford there. Um, but um, yeah, anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? But if not, we'll just... No, I think we're good. Okay. So um, as always, catch us on all of the podcast um, applications, anywhere you can find a uh, podcast. We're also on YouTube. You can find us over at the Davenet Institute's YouTube channel. Uh, but Joe, brother, excellent convo. I love you. Love you too, man. All right. And we'll see you all next time. See you later.